So hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Book Cafe Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Nizam. And in today's episode, we will be talking about this book right here uh, in my hands, entitled The Synoptic Problem, A Way Through the Maze by Professor Dr. Mark Goodacre. And uh, I'm extremely thrilled to have the author himself in today's episode to talk about the book. Uh, but just before that, if you are watching this episode on YouTube, uh, do, be, do please be sure to subscribe to the channel and hit that bell icon. It really helps us out. And if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, you know, do please continue to uh, download and support the show because we are going to have a lot more content added very soon. And in fact, it's very fair to say that we have new content added all the time. But as far as this episode goes, let me first do my due diligence by welcoming the author himself, Professor Dr. Mark Goodacre. So hi, Professor. Welcome to Book Cafe Podcast. Hello, Omar. It's great to be with you and great to be with everybody else. So that I, I just reached on the shelf, guys. That's the physical copy of the book. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, so as I like to tell my uh, uh, viewers and listeners, one of the things that we always struggle with in our part of the world is access to the scholarly books that you guys have in the States. But luckily, uh, you know, thank goodness for Amazon Kindle and the Google Play Store. So we're able to just pretty much download an, an e-version of whatever book that we're interested in reading. Um, so, Professor, uh, we will, of course, get to talking about your book in just a moment. Uh, but before that, we here at Book Cafe Podcast love to know about our authors as, uh, just as much as we love to know about the book that we're talking about. So uh, for our viewers and listeners who haven't read the book yet and who may be discovering you as well for the very first time, you know, do please take this opportunity to tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Like, for example, your uh, cultural background, your education background, where you grew up, what you do for a living. And in fact, anything mm -hmm. at all that you'd like to share with us? Sure, yeah. I, uh, my name is Mark Odeka and I am at Duke University in the United States of America. In fact, although the viewers can't see it, I'm, I'm looking out over some beautiful buildings at the moment through my window here uh, in my office at Duke. And uh, I've been here for 18 years. I teach religious studies. And my main area of concentration is New Testament, early Christianity. I'm interested in the historical Jesus. I'm interested in, in non-canonical gospels as well. And I'd encourage as well as, as well as people to subscribe to Book Cafe podcast. I'd also, if I may, plug my own podcast, which yes. is called yes. NT Pod. Mm -hmm. NT Pod. And you can find that in all the same places that you can find mm -hmm. Book Cafe. So, uh, and, and I have about 103 episodes of that so far. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. So Duke University, uh, Professor, so if I'm not mistaken, uh, Mr. Tim Cook, the current CEO of Apple, was also a graduate of Duke University. Is that correct? Yeah. That's right. In fact, he did our commencement speech about four or five years ago. So we were all a little bit starstruck. Uh, I was particularly pleased to be because I was one of the professors that that uh, processed in. Uh, I was very happy to be on the same stage as the great Tim Cook. Mm -hmm. But in fact, while he was here, at the same time, Melinda um, Gates, well, Melinda French, uh, Bill Gates' uh, wife, was was here too. So uh, she was also a computer whiz. So uh, we, we have an amazing track record of computer mm -hmm. geniuses at uh, Duke. <laughs> well, that, that's absolutely fabulous. So I can just imagine, uh, you know, I'm actually, um, I moonlight as a podcaster and a YouTuber, but in my day job, I'm a full-time sales director. I'm actually a business grad. And so, uh, yeah, uh, Tim Cook is, of course, uh, you know, 
Um, he's a legend of uh, of the business world, so and uh, and it's really wonderful to hear that even uh, the uh, Melinda French Gates is also. Uh, been around uh, Duke University. So, um, so uh, one more thing, Professor. Um, obviously, I can tell by your accent that uh, you must have had your origins some, somewhere in the UK. So, would you mind telling us mm -hmm. a little bit about that as well? Your journey from the UK to the US and how long? Yeah, that? sure. I was, yeah, sure. I, I was born in uh, Leicestershire in England and uh, was brought up in the Midlands. And I went to university in Oxford, where I did my BA. And then I did a, an MPhil and then I did a doctorate. So so did all my education in Oxford. And uh, yeah, I still have quite a lot of family uh, over in over in England. So uh, I try and get over there as often as I can. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. And uh, so 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 uh, so let's just uh, dive right into the book, Professor. After that preamble, mm -hmm. um, so the synoptic uh, problem: a way through the maze. So there's a couple of things that we probably have to uh, define first. You know, because we're after all not just reaching out to uh, uh, people who have an interest in biblical studies and, and parabiblical studies, but also book lovers in general. So uh, for, for their sake, would you mind just uh, telling us very quickly, what exactly do we mean by the title of the book? What do we mean by the synoptic problem? And what exactly is the solution that we're proposing in the book? If you could just help us understand that. Thanks. Yeah, it's the synoptic problem is quite easily explained as being the literary puzzle mm -hmm. about how the first three Gospels in the New Testament are related. So how are Matthew, Mark and Luke related? Which one of them is the first? Did any of them use the other ones? Were there any lost documents that were shared between them? It's called synoptic because the sin bit means together and optic to do with the eyes. And it means you can view the three all together, one, two, three, but John is different. So we put John to one side and on the back burner for now. And then we look at the three synoptic gospels. And the idea of my book, A Way Through the Maze, was to try and take a simple route that walks the reader through the maze as straightforwardly as they can, because it can seem very daunting and problematic at first, but actually, if you take it in stages, it's like any academic discipline. You don't just throw it on everyone all at once. If you go stage by stage, step by step, I think you can actually find a good solution to the problem. So I end the book with putting forward my own solution to the synoptic problem. Well, it's not, I didn't invent it, but the one that I propose, uh, which is known as the Farrah theory. And that's the theory that Matthew and Mark, sorry, Matthew and Luke both used Mark's gospel. But in addition to that, Luke also had a copy of Matthew's gospel. That's known as the Farrah theory. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, uh, so Professor, uh, uh, as I understand it, uh, based on what you've written in the book, and as well as, you know, doing my research uh, for this episode, um, the fair hypothesis is only one of the possible solutions to the synoptic problems, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, so just to uh, you know, play a little bit of devil's advocate, would you mind also telling us what are some of the other solutions to the synoptic problem before we dive more deep dive into the fair hypothesis itself? So, could you just help us? Yeah, out? sure. The, yeah, sure. The, the one, the the solution to the synoptic problem that's been most common for, I would say at least a century and maybe a little longer than a century is known as the two source theory. And the two source theory is essentially that Mark is the first gospel to have been written and that Matthew and Luke both use Mark. But in addition to that, Matthew and Luke both also used 
a hypothetical document which they label Q for convenience because it doesn't actually physically exist anywhere as far as we know. And it's it, it, Q stands for the first, well, Q is the first letter of the German word Gewelle, which means source. So if you're doing it in English, you could call it S. Yep. So uh, that's the two-source theory. And I think that the the value of the two-source theory is it's really emphasised the importance of Mark and priority, the idea that Mark is the first gospel, and that's something that I strongly agree with. The bit I disagree with is the is the Q bit. But there's lots going for the two-source theory. It makes a lot of sense in all sorts of ways. And one of the things that it has done very successfully is helped us to see how Matthew's gospel was composed and how Luke's gospel were composed. Because if Mark is one of their major sources or their major source, you can actually see Mark on almost every page of their gospels. You know, it just keeps showing its little presence up there. So, so I mean, that I think is fundamentally right about the two-source theory. Mm, absolutely. And uh, if I could just, uh, just for my knowledge, Professor, if I could just, uh, um, you know, put in a number. Uh, uh, if you take the entire... Um, the universe of biblical scholars who are in support of the two, uh, uh, you know, the two, um, two uh, let me just start. Two source. Yeah, the two source hypothesis versus the fair theory. Uh, what percentage would you put in each camp? If I could just throw that out there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult to say. I, I, would, I would say that because, you know, we haven't done a poll. Yeah. I think it would be fair to say that for most of the 20th century into the early 21st century, the two source theory was absolutely dominant. So you'd be looking at 80 or 90% of scholars believed it. I think that that's eroded a bit in recent years. I would say over the last 10 or 20 years, I think there's been more skepticism about the two source theory. Mark and priority, that aspect of it is still very much in the majority. And I think you could, if you want me to put a figure on that, I would say 90% mm -hmm. of scholars believe in Mark and priority. But I think belief in the other tenet of two-source theory, the qubit, I think that has eroded a bit in recent years, that people have got more sceptical about the Q part of that equation. Mm -hmm. And uh, would it be fair to say that you have had a great uh, big role to play in you know, swaying people away from that theory towards the fair theory? Because that's pretty much what I think. I, I I I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean I I mean I think it's fair to say when I when I started writing about the synoptic problem about twenty five years ago, I felt so much in the minority. I felt so much in the margins that there were some people that thought I was absolutely crazy. Like the idea that you would try and take on something like the Q hypothesis, and. I even had teachers that discouraged me from the idea of doing my doctoral work on this because they thought it would be too risky career-wise. Uh, so I didn't. I didn't write my doctoral dissertation on Q, except tangentially I did, but I wrote it on something else. Because I, I wrote this book, the one you mentioned, um, in 2001. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write that is that every single major textbook about the synoptic gospels or about the synoptic problem in particular advocated so strongly for the two source theory that I just thought it would be a good idea to try and set out the alternative case. But at the same time, also to do something that none of those books did, which always annoyed me, because one of the things about if you want to get a good solution to any problem in life, you need to understand the problem first. So you don't begin with the solution, at least I don't think you should. 
I think you begin by setting out what the problem is. So in the way through the maze, what I did was I tried to set out the data as clearly as I could to lead the student through to see what the phenomena look like. Once you've got, and of course, that's never going to be completely neutral enterprise. I tried to make it as neutral as possible, but um, it's never going to be completely neutral and objective, but you try and do that as far as possible. And then when you set out the data, you can then build from the data, you understand the problem, and then you can work towards a solution. So that was really one of the reasons that I, that I wrote that book. At the same time, I also had a website. I, I used to love back in the 90s, uh, hand coding web pages. I mean, they look kind of terrible by today's standards, <laughs> but I used to enjoy the fun of putting HTML together. So, uh, I, I so I, the first website I created was called the case. Well, it it, it it was called a world without Q is what I called it, and uh, and then a few years later I changed it to the case against Q website. But it was but the idea was that. That would also be another way to reach more people, especially students, to to just try and put a question mark against the Q hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of which, Professor, um, obviously this book is not your first rodeo. You have, in fact, written a couple of other books as well. Uh, would you mind just uh, very quickly telling us uh, the names of some of the other books that you've written? And uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, would you like to just put in a plug for that? Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, sure. The first the first book I wrote was my doctoral dissertation. It was called uh, Golda and the Gospels. Golda as in shoulder. Uh, Golda was, was a scholar, a British scholar who was famous for having advocated for this non-Q hypothesis. And that came out in 1996. And then Way Through the Maze came out in 2001, the one we're talking about. I then, um, at the same time that I was writing Way Through the Maze, I also wrote another book called The Case Against Q. And that's the one that probably has done most to, of what I've written, to erode confidence in Q. Then in 2012, I wrote a book called Thomas and the Gospels, which is all about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Thomas's relationship with the Gospels. I'm, I'm still really interested in the Gospel of Thomas. Right. Right. And I'm trying to finish a book on John's Gospel at the moment. Uh, and I it's taking far too long because I've been involved with university administration too much. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and I, I'm back to research and teaching again now. So hopefully that will help me to speed up on finishing that book. Okay, absolutely. And we do wish you Godspeed with regards to that book, Professor, because uh, obviously all of your fans and readers would be really looking forward to reading that book as well. And of course, we'll definitely have to have you back for another episode. But, you know, we are, I am getting a bit ahead of myself. So let's just come back to uh, the synoptic pro problem. Um, so, Professor, as you mentioned, the, you did come out, uh, the book did come out back in 2001, and we're now in 2023. Uh, but, um, would you say that uh, has there been any new developments since the publication of the book that you would probably go back and change uh, if you had the opportunity to do so or come up with a new edition for the book? Is there anything at all? Yeah, I think, yes, I, I would actually love to produce a new edition of it. And I, I've thought about this quite often because it wouldn't take me too much work to do a revision. And I think there are things I would like to add. I would actually quite enjoy adding a whole chapter on John's use of the synoptics so that it actually reached out beyond just the synoptics. So it could be, you know, more about gospel interrelations more broadly. I would also love to add a chapter on Thomas's knowledge of the synoptics since mm -hmm. when I wrote this book, I wasn't an expert on that, but I became more expert as the years went on. Mm -hmm. I would say also I've slightly changed my mind about how I would present some of the, ev some of the evidence. So... 
I, I would I would definitely make a few adjustments here and there. And I would also like more illustrations. So so in, in the book, I did put lots and lots and lots of little synopses of the Gospels, charts, bullet points, because I think that helps the reader to navigate through. But I'd like even more. Mm-hmm. I think I think I I, sh- I, there's, I actually have a, I have a piece coming out um, hopefully within the next year or so called the Gospels in Synopsis, and that's going to be part of the Oxford uh, Bible Commentary, the New Oxford Bible Commentary, and that's almost as long that piece as the whole book. It's, it was like writing a fresh book, and it was the process of writing that piece that made me think. Do you know what? I actually could re- go back and revise way through the maze as well at some point. Maybe I'll do it for its twenty fifth anniversary because that would be three years time. Maybe I could I should right. do it then. Okay. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's nothing better than having a big milestone to you know go back and uh, come up with a new edition. So yes, that's wonderful. Um, so you mentioned the Gospel of Thomas a couple of times, Professor. So I think now is a good opportunity to, to deep dive a little bit more into that particular gospel. So as far as my knowledge goes, it is a sayings gospel. And uh, but how how does that relate to the synoptics, or does it relate to the synoptics at all in any way? Uh, would you mind uh, you know? Sure. I mean, it's a good question. Yeah, Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the Gospel of Thomas was pretty well known in antiquity. We see lots of early Christian writers writing about it, but it was lost for most of Christian history. People just stopped copying it after a certain point and then it it got lost. But it was rediscovered in the 20th century, well, very late 19th and uh, up to the middle of the 20th century. Three Greek fragments were found at Oxyrhynchus and then a complete Coptic copy of the Gospel of Thomas was found in Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945. And it does seem to be as a sayings gospel in which Jesus is essentially a talking head. He, he, he simply says wise things, he gets questioned sometimes by his disciples or by other characters, and then he responds to, to that. And it doesn't have a narrative framework like the Synoptic Gospels in John, it's just very much individual sayings and uh, it's quite fascinating. It's quite an enigmatic piece, very mysterious. It's important for early Christian history because it does seem to be quite early. It must date from at least the middle of the second century, and some people would put it even earlier than that. And it then raises, because of so many parallels with the Synoptic Gospels, it raises a fascinating question. Could it be that the Gospel of Thomas knows the Synoptic Gospels? Does it use the Synoptics as sources? And scholarship has generally been divided on that. Some people think it's an early independent source. Other people think it did know the Synoptic Gospels. Well, I fall in that latter group. I think the Gospel of Thomas does know the Synoptic Gospels. And so my book, Thomas and the Gospels, was an attempt to argue through that and say, you can so often see in the way that Thomas phrases things, certain things that are characteristic of Matthew or of Luke. So quite often, it takes over what I think of as Matthew's redactional fingerprints and Luke's redactional fingerprints. So Thomas, I think, does know the Synoptic Gospels, and that's one thing that I've, that I've argued. But it doesn't make it any less interesting for that. It actually makes it more interesting because it means you can actually see how it's working with some of its key source material. Okay, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I'll just jump right in, um, jump in here and talk a little bit about uh, St. Thomas and his journey to India. You know, um, mm-hmm. as you uh, obviously know, Professor, that there's a huge St. Thomas Christian community in Kerala, southern India. 
And yes. that came as quite a surprise to me as well when I first learned about mm. them. And so, you know, I once had a chance to ask them that, how do you know that St. Thomas really did come to India? And they'll, you know, push back and say, how, do you have any proof that Peter ever went to Rome? So, and the question is, no, mm. we don't. So, <laughs> so these are yeah. two equally valid traditions. So yes, I think that's absolutely fascinating, Professor. So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so as yeah, I understand, if I may, if I, yeah, yeah, please, yeah, if, I, if I may, if I may just pitch on that, yeah, I am really interested in those Thomas traditions in India. And in, in mm -hmm. back in 2016, I did visit the sites in Chennai. I haven't actually checked out the sites in Kerala, but but I mean, there's a lot of Thomas Thomas yeah. uh, devotion, if that's the right word, in 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 Chennai, and and a lot and the connection with India certainly goes back to the third century because the Acts of Thomas references India, uh, and so. Uh, I'm hoping to go back again at some point and do a bit more. It, it, if anyone is interested in my own thoughts on it, I did cover it in my podcast back in 2016. So I had a few sort of on the road episodes. Okay. And they're not just audio, but it, it, I, I actually, I recorded my thoughts about the Thomas sites I was in while I was, while I was, you know, walking around. So, uh, yeah, so that it is something of great interest to me. Mm, absolutely, absolutely, and of course, uh, we'll definitely uh, keep an eye out for for your book on uh, on the saints on uh, the Gospel of Thomas, mm -hmm. Professor. So, um, I haven't had a chance mm -hmm. to read it, but I, I definitely want to uh, after talking to you about it. Okay, so coming back to um, the synoptic uh, problem, Professor, um, uh, let's just uh, backtrack a little bit and talk uh, about the the entire New Testament itself. So 27 books of the New Testament, 13 of which are the letters of Paul. Then we have the four Gospels, um, uh, three of which are known as the Synoptics. Then we have the Gospel of John. We have the Acts of the Apostles, which is sometimes called the Fifth Gospel. And then we have 10 other books, right? So um, to what extent uh, can we say, Professor, that, um, that uh, you know, with regards to um, uh, the, the Luke having uh, making use of both Mark and Matthew, uh, how confident can can how much confidence can we place in the fair uh, hypothesis? And obviously, you've given a really good defense uh, about it in the book. But if there was somebody who wanted to push back and say, no, um, you know, it's just sort of if we get if we get rid of Q, we're just simply taking problems from one bucket and then put putting it onto another bucket. So, what would be your response to mm -hmm. the critics uh, who say something? Mm -hmm. like that? Yeah, I mean. I mean, speaking for myself, I've always felt, I mean, I don't know whether this is a blessing or a curse, but I, I'm blessed with certainty on this. I, I'm absolutely convinced that Luke had a copy of something that looked like Matthew's gospel. Of course, lots of people don't agree, agree with me on that. The, the reason why I think that Luke's use of Matthew works so much better than Q. Well, there's lots of reasons, but, but one of them is that the degree of agreement between Luke and Matthew is surprisingly close. I mean, they are really, really close, especially in the material that they share with one another that's not in Mark, mm -hmm. which is where you get the idea of Q from. And actually, the I, I call this agree, agreement too good to be Q because if they were both copying from another source there, from Q, you would expect the agreement not to be quite as close as it is there. So that's quite telling. But but equally, I whenever you look at 
the material that they share, you can see things that are far more likely to be moving in the direction from Matthew to Luke than mm -hmm. from some other direction, like Luke to Matthew or Pew to Matthew and Luke. So you'll often find that Matthew's distinctive way of talking is mm -hmm. present in Luke's gospel. Yeah. One really famous one is, we still use this expression sometimes, perhaps facetiously in conversation, where we'll say, oh, ye of little faith, you of little faith. Yeah. That is a very Matthean way of talking. It comes five times in the gospel, never comes in Mark, and just once in Luke, where I would say Luke is, is taking it over from, from Matthew. And you find it in all sorts of other ways as well. If you look at John the Baptist's speech in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, the way that John the Baptist talks is the way that Jesus talks in Matthew's gospel. So he says things like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to escape from the coming wrath? Well, Matthew has a very, very similar way of speaking twice again in Jesus's mouth, once in chapter 12 and once in chapter 23. And he even uses in both cases that same extraordinary image you brood of vipers you you know you snipers you you it's like serpents offspring something like that so yeah so i i think it's hard for the q people because they actually have to explain why q so often ends up looking a bit like matthew mm -hmm. and really i mean there's this great thing called occam's razor great old philosophical principle that you don't multiply entities beyond what's necessary right. and my feeling really with q is just we just don't need it we don't need q to explain the agreements it doesn't it doesn't explain things better than luke's use of matthew does mm -hmm. in fact i think it explains them worse because you end up with a whole series of strange coincidences where luke doesn't know matthew and yet at the same time he he, he keeps doing the same stuff that matthew's doing you know mm -hmm. so yeah. I, I i think I just, I, I mean, obviously, I think I've got the better of the argument there, but uh, obviously, my Q colleagues don't agree with me on that. Nor do the colleagues that think Matthew used Luke, and that's uh, that's another important um, solution to the synoptic problem. That's one thing, incidentally, that I would change about the book if I did a revised version. I would add more on the theory that Matthew knew Luke, and I, I would explain why I think it works better to see Luke's use of Matthew than Matthew's use of Luke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, so just for my knowledge, Professor, um, uh, do you feel that maybe there is a bit more vested interest in the two source hypothesis simply because uh, it's giving you more than one source, right? So historians always say that whenever you have multiple attestation, you can be mm -hmm. more confident about what you're doing. So if you get rid of the, if, if you get rid of Q, you're automatically getting rid of one source. And so you're left with mm. a lower number of sources. So do you feel that maybe there's a lot more political motivation or maybe there people are just afraid to let go of that two source because of that particular reason? Uh, what would be your take on I think the might yeah, I mean, it's obviously always difficult to speculate on people's motivations. And I, I, I've noticed that whenever people speculate on my motivations, they usually get them wrong. So I'm hesitant to do that. But at the same time, I think I have experienced people saying to me that if you lose Q, you lose one of your most important sources for historical Jesus research. So I think it leads to some degree of anxiety because if you read a lot of the major works of historical Jesus study over the last couple of generations, people have relied very heavily on Q. In other words, what they do is 
they say because Q predates Matthew and Luke, it's by definition an earlier source. And the earlier you get, the more likely the source is to have historical material. So that's one of the reasons people kind of hang on to Q, I think, because of that anxiety about losing something that's potentially key. But one of the responses I always want to make to that is, if you lose Q, you don't lose any actual data at all. I mean, all the stuff that scholars put in Q, all the stuff that they 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 get pull out of Matthew and Luke and reconstruct as part of Q, that data is all there. It's not gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that historical Jesus study and other historical study becomes more interesting if there's no Q, because you can actually see more clearly the conversation that's going on between these early Christian works. I think watching the way that Luke is reacting, not just to Mark, but also to Matthew, becomes really, really interesting. Same, I would say, with John's knowledge of the synoptics. I think if John, as I'm arguing, knows the synoptics, you can actually almost see the conversation unfolding in front of you. And I think that's historically really exciting. Mm, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if I just may um, put, it, put in another question here, Professor, um, I, I just had it at the top of my head. Let me just think. Um, uh, I think it'll come to me. Okay, let me just go on to another question for now. Um, if we were to put dates on all four Gospels, so uh, historians uh, are in agreement that the letters of Paul were written in the 50s. Uh, Mark was written in the year 70 AD. Where would you put Matthew and Luke? Uh, would they be in the 80s and 90s or somewhere far yeah, off? I, I would say... Yeah, I mean, both Matthew and Luke have to post-date Mark. So, and if Mark is, and I'm sure Mark's written after 70. So it's, and and in fact, Matthew and Luke are even more more clearly post-70 than Mark is because they have these quite explicit references to what looks like the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70. So that means that Matthew has to have been written after 70. And really, you can't go too far into the second century for Matthew because people start referring to it. And so it was already getting quite popular in the early to middle second century. And not long after that, you get papyri turning up, uh, little pieces of Matthew's gospel. So I would be be comfortable with Matthew dated somewhere in the 80s, but that could just be a bit earlier. It could be a bit later. Luke's gospel, I think, has to be end of the first, early second century. Uh, in part, obviously, because I think he, he knows Matthew, but but also a scholar called Steve Mason has made a very good case that Luke knows Josephus's Antiquities. Now, Jose- Josephus's Antiquities is written in the mid nineties. So if you've got if you've got Luke showing knowledge of Josephus, that does push Luke post Josephus. And for what it's worth, you can't put Luke too late because Ignatius, who's writing in the early to middle second century, seems to know both Matthew and Luke. Uh, his his knowledge of Luke is really, really clear to me. I, I keep meaning to write it up, but I've never got around to it. But um, I do think that Ignatius shows that Luke was already around by the early to middle second century. So I think broadly speaking, I mean, I, I always used to say Mark 70s, Matthew 80s, Luke 90s, John 100s, which is a nice, simple way of stacking it up. Right. But that might be a bit too convenient, and Luke might be a little bit later than that. So, but broadly speaking, we're looking at a span of time from seventy to about one hundred and twenty. 
And also there's stuff of Matthew's that he doesn't care for. There's, there's a very strange story in Matthew 17 where Simon Peter asks Jesus whether they should pay the temple tax or not. Mm-hmm. And Jesus tells him to go down to a fishing, go, go down to the, to, to the fishing lake and pick up, a, get a fish and then there'll be a coin in its mouth. And I don't think that Luke has as much time for that kind of story as he does for some of the other bits and pieces in Matthew that he does like. So he keeps in the stuff he likes and he dispenses with the stuff he doesn't like. And then he fills up the gospel with lots of new material that that is more Lucan in style. More Lucan in style, for sure, for sure. And uh, if I could just jump in with a a related question, Professor, um, with regards to Luke's motivation for rewriting Matthew. So... As far as my knowledge of Matthew goes, I, I believe that it's a very pro-Jewish, pro-Israelite gospel, which seems to have mm-hmm. a lot of focus and fixation on the Jewish law and keeping it, you know, making sure that there's not a single dot or a tittle, tittle uh, taken out. And do you feel that maybe Luke is the backlash to Matthew and hence why that could be also a reason for his motivation to rewrite Matthew because he's more pro-Gentile? Uh, what, what would you I think to some extent. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, Luke, Luke definitely has less, it has a less striking Jewish emphasis than Matthew. Matthew's, Matthew's Jesus, I think, goes some way to re-Judaizing Mark's Jesus. Right. I mean, Mark's Jesus is, even though he hangs out with Jews almost all the time in his gospel, mm-hmm. there's still that orientation towards Gentiles in Mark. You get You get the sense that that he he wants to keep kind of reminding you that ultimately Jesus is going to be a Messiah for all the nations. Um, And Matthew kind of reigns that in a little bit and his Jesus becomes more recognisably Jewish, if that makes sense. And, yeah, the passage you mentioned is a really striking one. You know, he says, not one jot, not one tittle will fall from the law until everything is accomplished, whatever that means. But, uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and, but, so, so Luke then I think reorient, reorientates his gospel so it's a little more Gentile facing than Matthew. But it has to be said at the same time that a lot of the material that Matthew has added that does look, you know, kind of recognisably Jewish, Luke does retain. I mean, so he does have quite a lot of that, that material. And Luke has actually got a slightly different story to tell because what Luke wants to do, I think, he wants to have his gospel devoted mainly to Jesus's Jewish followers. And then he wants to open things up to Gentiles in his second volume, Acts of the Apostles. Yep. So I think part of what's going on in, in Luke is, is, is he's making that Jewish first and then to the Gentiles plan. And he's made, doing that quite explicitly, even to the extent where one of the stories he takes over from Matthew is the centurion's boy. I'm sometimes called centurion's servant, but mm-hmm. not entirely clear that he's a servant in, in Matthew. Well, that story in, in Matthew has a Gentile coming to Jesus in person and begging Jesus to heal his son or his boy. And in Luke's gospel, these, the, that's, that story's still there, it's in Luke 7. But in Luke, he, the centurion doesn't come in person. He sends a delegation. So even there, you don't get a face-to-face meeting with a Gentile. And, and I think so. Luke is, is waiting until the second volume for the Gentiles. And in fact, he does have a Gentile centurion getting converted in Acts, and he's called Cornelius. So 
you do actually have you do have this this kind of reorienting in, in Luke's gospel. Correct, absolutely, and uh, yeah, I uh, I think I had another related question to uh, to this particular point, but let me just skip through that because we should try and cover some of the questions as well. So uh, one one thing that you mentioned in the book, Professor, if memory serves me right, is that uh, although a lot of scholars are of the opinion that the earlier the sources, the better it is because it's probably more accurate. But you had a contrarian mm -hmm. view about this in the book. Could you help us understand why that is and what made you come to this conclusion? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the thing is that, well, one of the reasons that people believe in Q is that they say that sometimes Matthew and sometimes Luke has the more original form of a saying. Right. And so they're, they're sort of, you're, you're kind of comparing what Matthew and what Luke says. And so if, if it looks like one is sometimes more primitive than the other, then obviously they they that would be explained if they're both getting it from Q, and the difficulty the difficulty about that is is that it's kind of a judgment call about who's earlier. I mean, I mean, for example, there's one bit in Luke 17 where it talks about your faith being great enough to be able to tell a sycamore tree to be rooted up and to go into the sea, and the parallel in Matthew's gospel has a mountain, so faith can move mountains. Now, all the Q people think that the Lucan version is the more primitive, so they go for sycamore tree. So they say that's a good example of something that's more primitive. But faith moving mountains is something that already appears in Paul's epistles. In 1 Corinthians 13, you have faith that can move mountains. So there, where we can actually test it, it's the mountains that's 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 earlier. And so so much of the time where you're making those judgment calls, I think there's actually a bit of a problem about saying, ah, oh, Luke is definitely earlier here and so on. But equally, even if you could show beyond reasonable doubt that Luke occasionally has a more primitive version of something, that wouldn't necessarily show that he was reliant, reliant on Q for it, because we know from other things that sometimes somebody might rewrite the source, re rewrite their source material in the light of other stuff that they know. An obvious example being something like the Lord's Prayer. If you've always prayed the Lord's Prayer in a particular way all of your life, and then you come across a literary version of the prayer, which looks different, which do you go with? Do you go with the new version you've just found in, in the document you're looking at? Or do you go with the one that you've known all your life and you've been praying all your life? So... I think sometimes what Luke might be doing is he might be taking material that he sees in Matthew, but effectively overlaying it with something that he's picked up from tradition. I can't demonstrate that's the case, but uh, I think that it's possible that that happens. You can actually see something like it happening even when he uses Mark, because in the Eucharistic tradition where Jesus has his Last Supper with the disciples, the Lucan version of the Eucharist looks a bit more like Paul's version in 1 Corinthians 11, then it looks like Mark's. So that would be a case of we know if Mark and Poet is right, which I think it is, we know that Luke knows Mark's gospel, and yet he's still relying there on, on Paul. So my sense is that it's quite likely that occasionally Luke might have overlaid whatever his tradition is with other things that he knew, but it may, maybe not. I mean, some people are a little bit more single-minded and say no no Luke's always secondary you know um I, I think most of the time he is but every now and then not is that the kind of thing you're you're thinking of 
Um, yeah, I think that 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 kind of explains, you know, um, why why you had written what you wrote in the book, Professor. But mm -hmm. I, again, I, I will take your answer as it is. Um, I'll probably have to think a little bit more about it as well. Uh, but but I did find it fascinating that you would put that in the book because you know you're you're so we are also ingrained into thinking in one certain way. And what I really mm -hmm. appreciated about your book is that you were not afraid to stand up for contrarian truths or contrarian viewpoints. And so that's what actually attracted me to the book in the first place, that you're making that contrarian stand. And I'm personally somebody mm -hmm. who loves looking for you know, contrarian viewpoints and contrarian truths. So I think that's, it's a discussion mm -hmm. that we could, that, you know, we could have, and we could go on forever, but, you know, we'll, we'll definitely get back to that as well. Um, so, uh, Professor, just uh, uh, before we run out of time, you know, I just wanted to very quickly touch upon one more thing, which is how significant is the, the double volume that we have from Luke, you know, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, as well as Acts of the Apostles being written by the same author. How does that help us in dating where to fit in Luke and Acts, and how does it affect our understanding of the Gospels themselves? If you could just help us understand that a bit. Sure. I mean, I think... I mean, we're so lucky with Luke because we have got that second volume and it's difficult to know. I mean, some scholars use that that term Luke Acts as if they're one is one work in two parts. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't need to be the case. I mean, one volume could have been written many years after the other. Mm. Um, but 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 one thing I would say is we are very lucky about having Acts of the Apostles because it helps us to see what Luke is doing when he's dealing with other material. And you can see parallels in the two. And the way that he moves things around in the narrative is, is quite similar across the two. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Acts chapter 9, just after Paul is converted on the road to Damascus, he goes straight to Jerusalem. And that's very similar to the way that Jesus... Well, let, let me see, put some of this. That is something that Paul says didn't happen. In Galatians 1, he says that he didn't go to Jerusalem mm -hmm. uh, of, until three years later. Right. So we think, what was Luke doing there? And one of the things I think Luke is doing is he's pulled the story forward in the narrative in the same way that in the gospel, he pulls forward the story of the rejection at Nazareth, which happens all the way in Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 13. Luke pulls it all the way forward to chapter 4 so he can make it the definitive moment where Jesus can quote Isaiah and set out his stall, as it were. So, so quite often the things you see happening in Acts, you see similar things in the gospel. So the two mutually inform one another, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think that's an interesting comparison you've made, Professor, with regards to what Paul says about himself and what Luke says about Paul in Acts. Um, just for mm -hmm. my knowledge, uh, are they usually in agreement, you know, what Paul says about himself versus what Luke says, or... Is there some tension in between these two narratives? There is, there is tension. I mean, it, it, there are some very striking agreements between Acts of the Apostles and Paul's letters, but there's some really striking disagreements as well. So much so that people differ on whether Acts was written by a disciple of Paul's, like someone like the historical Luke that, uh, that uh, gets mentioned in Paul's letters, or whether it could just be someone from a later period who is who, who is kind of trying to depict Paul in a in a way that is got some correspondence with history, but some differences as well. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, the, the difficulty is that if Luke, the later you put Luke, 
the less likely it becomes that he knew the historical pool and the more likely it becomes that this is something that is is more kind of built up out of other materials. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And uh, speaking of Paul Professor, since we just mentioned him, um, uh, there's, there is one more question which, uh, you know, nothing to do with the book, but it's just for my own knowledge. And that is, um, we, a lot of scholars are of the opinion that John has the highest Christology, right? And Mark mm-hmm. has the lowest Christology. But as we all know, the letters of Paul did actually come out, you know, during the 50s. And and, mm. and and to my untrained eyes, it does seem to me as though Paul does have a high Christology. So how do we reconcile the two? I mean, do scholars ever think about this or talk about this as to how Paul being yeah. so early could have such a high Christology? Yeah. 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 It's, it's very interesting. I, I think, I mean, I too think Paul has a high Christology. I think Philippians 2 especially uh, shows that. I think 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where where Paul appears to talk about God being one God using words that come from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, and Jesus is kind of inserted into that. That's very high Christology, I think. The 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 thing, and I, I do also agree that John's Gospel has a very high Christology, higher than probably any of the others. But I think the problem with the way that some people do their history is that they think the history always moves in a straight line. So you know, you start off with Christology being low and then it gradually gets higher and higher and higher and higher until you hit like, you know, the sky. Right. And actually history is not like, history is more like that. <laughs> so you could very easily have a Paul with a high Christology and then you could have say Luke with a lower Christology and then John with a high Christology. That's just life. I mean, as it happens, I think that the case for all four canonical gospels having a fairly high Christology is there. I, I, I think even even Mark's gospel it begins right off the bat with the words from Isaiah forty, "Prepare the way of the Lord." Mm-hmm. And in context, that does seem to be talking about God, the God of the Old Testament, "Prepare the way of the Lord." And then it seems to be applied to Jesus, who is also called the Lord in Mark's gospel, and even more in. In Luke's gospel, Luke really leans into describing Jesus as the Lord, the Kyrios. So I think it's arguable that the synoptics also have a high Christology, but just not as high as John's. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, fair enough. And uh, definitely that's uh, really something to think about. So thank you so much for indulging me with that particular question, Professor. No, um, so uh, Professor, uh, just uh, before we uh, come to a close to the, for this episode, you know, um, there's something else that I wanted to ask, uh, you know, outside of the book, and that is that uh, we've been very fortunate to have had a lot of uh, critical historical Quranic scholars on the show. Uh, we've had, for example, Professor Dr. Gabriel Said Reynolds, um, Dr. Imran El-Badawi, and, uh, and there are one or two scholars whose work actually overlaps with biblical studies as well. So I think uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Javad Hashmi is a very up-and-coming young scholar uh, whose work, you know, he, he loves to go back and forth between biblical and Quranic studies. Uh, Dr. David Penchansky is also somebody who comes to mind. Uh, and so uh, my question would be that, uh, you know, uh, some 20, 25 years back, I think it's very fair to say that Quranic studies was in a very nascent form. It wasn't as uh, highly evolved as biblical studies, I, I suppose. But is there a lot more mm-hmm. cross-pollination happening in this day and age? Uh, what would be your opinion on that? It's a good question. It's beginning to ha- happen, I think. Uh, I mean, here at Duke, we teach a course which we call Scripture, colon, 
Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And one of the things that we do is we 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 do kind of comparative work. So and that means sometimes looking at how the traditions differ and sometimes looking at how similar they are. So we look at what canon formations like in Judaism as compared to Christianity, as compared to Islam, what it means to translate your materials, what it means to study texts and manuscripts. And so we work through lots of those issues in a university setting where everything is open to question. And and of course, Quranic scholarship has been in a different place than a lot of biblical scholarship for a while. I think there's there's obviously much less of the kind of historical, critical approach applied to the Quran than there is to Old Testament, New Testament and so on. But but I think that's changing and I think it's changing because, you know, people will study these things in a university setting where the whole joy of being in the university setting is the conversation. It's like getting together with different colleagues and saying, oh, can you explain to me what this means? Or can you explain how your tradition deals with this? Or can you explain how this tradition deals with that? So I think it is changing. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So I, I am really thrilled to hear that because uh, these conversations between the two, you know, um, the, the two traditions and the scholars talking to each other. And if you guys are all talking to each other, then we, the mm -hmm. mass audience, will only benefit from the knowledge that gets passed around. Okay, so with that, Professor, I have to say that I've pretty much exhausted uh, most of my questions with regards to the book and biblical and parabiblical studies. But just before we let you go, we do have a couple of staple uh, questions uh, regarding books. Uh, because we are, after all, a book, a podcast about books. It's in the title. So mm -hmm. I just, with your permission, I would just like to ask you a couple of uh, staple questions. Um, uh, sure. So the first, yeah. So the first staple question is: um, Are you more of a fiction person or a nonfiction person? What genre of books do you enjoy reading more? So, I I think I enjoy fiction much much more, but unfortunately, I <laughs> never seem to get the time to do it. Uh, so. I think it might be something that when I'm retired, I'll get back to reading more fiction. And I think in the end, I consume more fiction through TV and film than I do through books, sadly. But um, but no, that would be my go-to. If I and, and if I'm on vacation, I always read fiction. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So that that's really thrilling to hear. Okay, so the second staple question that we have, Professor. Um, I, I have to first uh, start by confessing that it's a question that a lot of our guests have said is a really tough question, but I'm, sh I'm hoping that you could, you could give us a good answer to this. And the, and the question is, if you could select a book that you feel that every young person should read at least once in their lifetime, it may or may not be related to biblical studies, it may or may not be a fiction book, but if you could re recommend something that could be useful or edifying, what would be that one particular book that you feel that everybody should read at least once in their lifetime? Gosh, that's a, that's a really tough one, isn't it? I see why your other guests are, uh, are uh, <laughs> kind of challenged by that as well. I mean, I mean, one perhaps the easiest thing to answer would be if you've not actually read Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there, right. then those because even though they're children's books and they're marketed at children and they were written for children, they are so richly rewarding. You can go back and read the Alice books over and over again and gain so much from them. So I think I might say the Alice books. Has any of your other guests said, said those? 
no, no, they haven't, not yet. But uh, but, but right. I, I find it very interesting. You know, I, I, I we've had a couple of guests who have uh, you know mentioned a couple of fiction books, like David Penjansky, for example, is is mm -hmm. extremely you know on the fiction side. So he said that. Uh, I will read nonfiction for my research, but I would never read it for pleasure. And he was mm -hmm. so adamant about that that you know I, I mm -hmm. kind of you know uh, got convinced. But for myself, you know, obviously because I have guests from all over, you know, uh, all across the spectrum, you know, uh, fiction, nonfiction. You know, I, I'm probably more bent towards the nonfiction aspect because mm -hmm. um, I, I treasure knowledge. But yes, I do agree with you that. There's a lot of lessons to be learned, life lessons to be learned from reading fiction as well. Okay, so mm -hmm. with that, uh, Professor, um, I think that we can come to a very fantastic conclusion for this episode. So for our viewers and listeners who have been with us all this time, uh, thank you very much uh, for staying till the end. The book, once again, is The Synoptic Problem by Professor Dr. Mark Goodacre. It's a fantastic book written by a fantastic scholar, so do please go, go ahead and grab the book. By the way, Professor, this is an open source book, correct? So I just wanted to make sure. Yes. I got that right. okay. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, so so you can grab it for free uh, if you if you you can just go along to my website at markgoodacre.org or it's on archive.org as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, it's uh, it's fantastic that it's open access because you know it's a really it's a fabulous read for anybody who's interested in uh, critical uh, historical studies or critical historical biblical studies. So I would definitely recommend it. It's a fabulous book. And uh, Professor Dr. Mark Goodacre, my thanks to you again, sir. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I really hope to have you back on Book Cafe Podcast for a future episode whenever your uh, new book comes out. So thank you once again for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.